0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello. I want to start with a newspaper article today. This is from five days ago in the Guardian newspaper. Headline, Unseen J.R.R. Tolkien Essays on Middle Earth, coming in 2021. Subhead, The Nature of Middle Earth will cover topics including elvish immortality, The Geography of Gondor, and Which Races Could Grow Beards. The article says, A previously unpublished collection of writings by J.R.R. Tolkien, exploring the world of Middle-earth in essays tackling topics ranging from elvish reincarnation to which characters had beards, is to be published next summer. The new collection, which is authorized by the Tolkien Estate, will be called The Nature of Middle-earth and will be published in June by HarperCollins, which promised it would, quote, transport readers back to the world of the Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales, and The Lord of the Rings, end quote. The publisher has released a host of previously unseen work by Tolkien, who died in 1973, over the last decade, including The Children of Hurin, Beren and Luthien, and The Fall of Gondolin. Let me stop there for a moment. J.R.R. Tolkien, who died in 1973, 47 years ago, and counting, back to the article, The Hobbit, Tolkien's first Middle-earth story, was published in 1937, with The Lord of the Rings following in 1954 and 1955. Okay, there we go. Let's get our years on the table here. Tolkien was born in 1892, means he was older than George Orwell and Ernest Hemingway, William Faulkner, Scott Fitzgerald, six years older than C.S. Lewis, which will become significant when the two of them meet, a couple years younger than Agatha Christie and Boris Pasternak, about 10 years older than James Joyce and Virginia Woolf. 10 years older? No, those two were 10 years older than him. I'm putting this all in perspective. Imagine any of these authors, all household names, having a book come out now in that kind of detail, not just a book of letters that have been found or a manuscript of a lost novel, but details about the intricacies of a world they created. Imagine if a publisher like HarperCollins was going to say, here we go, 2021, guess what? We're going to have a new volume for all you Hemingway fans. We're going to talk about whether Jake Barnes in The Sun Also Rises had a mustache. And we'll follow that up with an exciting new book about James Joyce's Ulysses. We have a new look at what type of gorgonzola cheese was in the sandwich that Leopold Bloom ate along with his burgundy. We'll include the type of bread that was eaten and some exciting new information about the vintage of the burgundy. I mean, just listen to that sentence. Topics ranging from elvish reincarnation To which characters had beards. (laughs) People are going to buy this book. I'm not bashing them. I just don't want to lose sight of how extraordinary this is. For an author that long ago to be inspiring this kind of devotion and curiosity. Back to the article. But HarperCollins' deputy publishing director, Chris Smith said the author continued to write about Middle-earth in the decades that followed, right up until the years before his death. Quote, For him, Middle-earth was part of an entire world to be explored, said Smith, and the writings in The Nature of Middle-earth reveal the journeys that he took as he sought to better understand his unique creation. End quote. Oh, boy. Chris Smith is a clever man. A clever deputy publishing director. If I were the publishing director, I'd watch my back. This Mr. Smith is talented. The writings in The Nature of Middle Earth reveal the journeys that Tolkien took. The journeys that he took. That's at the heart of Tolkien's work, of course. The journey. We're going to talk about that today. A journey, a quest. And now we see Chris Smith's little marketing suggestion. This was Tolkien's quest. This was a journey. He was a hero, striking out, setting forth, reluctant at first, perhaps, our hero, but summoned to greatness, tested, rewarded. That's really an astonishing phrase. The journeys that Tolkien took as he sought to better understand his unique creation. That's such a, an arresting image, isn't it? Beautiful. Wow. Wow. What's this? That's what we imagine Tolkien saying. Whoa, holy sugar. (laughs) Incredible. Look at over here. (laughs) It really gets at the nature of the creative process and the nature of world building. And that's why we're in this genre today, fantasy. It suggests there's something out there that was a little bit out of his control, that the world had a life of its own. In a way, I suppose it did. It's where you invent rules for a world, and then the world can kind of create itself. You can't see everything at first, all at once. Things happen. Things happen over... While you're looking over here, things happen over there. You can imagine an author saying, Look, I made all this up. I invented it. I can invent some more things, too. You want more? Here you go. It's up to me. It's mine. It's my world. It comes out of my brain. And here are the details of it. More details? Well, you can guess if you want. But unless I tell you, they're not real. They're just your speculation. And here we have a somewhat different image, don't we? We have an image of Tolkien saying, whoa, hang on. Hang on. This place is amazing. I know I invented it. But some of this stuff, I just sort of set out there. I didn't really have time to explore everything. I didn't finish every detail. But now that the books are out and I have a little more time, let me dig in. This is an amazing place. How does it work exactly? I have fun things to discover in here. Areas where I can dig in that I've always wanted to explore. In other words, Tolkien is not just an inventor, or maybe we should say an architect, painfully drawing details brick by brick, building things up from the ground the way you might build a wall. He's more like a creator, giving birth to something that has dimensions he can later discover, realms he can explore. Elvish immortality might be something he skipped over lightly, alluded to it, just suggested it. Held it out as a possibility, but now he can tackle the issue. The way a scholar might enjoy digging into a question like Were the Romans pious? Or what did the Babylonians eat for breakfast? Back to the article. Smith said the new collection was, quote, a veritable treasure trove, offering readers a chance to peer over Professor Tolkien's shoulder at the very moment of discovery and on every page. Middle earth is once again brought to extraordinary life. End quote. Hear that? The moment of discovery not the moment where Tolkien had to drag himself to the table and invent yet another thing, our tireless wall builder piling a brick on top of another brick. This is the moment of discovery. The the eyeballs turn and see a new area where we put a flashlight on it, it lights up. Maybe we're holding a torch. Maybe that's more appropriate. Topics include, this is the article again, topics include elvish immortality and reincarnation, the nature of the Valor, the I don't even know how to pronounce that, the godlike spirits of Middle Earth, the lands and beasts of Numenor, the geography of the kingdom of Gondor, and even who had beards. Whether elves, hobbits, and even dwarven women, could grow beers has long been subject of debate among fans. The writings will be edited by Carl F. Hostetter, a Tolkien expert and head of the Elvish Linguistic Fellowship, who has been a computer engineer at NASA since 1985. Hostetter previously worked with Tolkien's youngest son, Christopher, who curated the author's posthumous output until his death in January, aged 95. Okay, again. Just the astonishing nature of this article. Whether elves, hobbits, and even dwarven women could grow beards has long been subject of debate among fans. There are only a handful of books like this. Harry Potter is one. Game of Thrones. I can think of one or two others. Sherlock Holmes might be one. I was tempted to leave Sherlock Holmes out, but maybe I should leave it in. I was going to leave it out because today's subject is our part of our genre month fantasy fiction. This is the final in our Thursday theme month, and Harry Potter and Game of Thrones are two other leading examples of the genre, which Tolkien didn't originate, but which he basically defined for everyone who came after. Let's hear the author of The Game of Thrones, George R.R. Martin, talking about that. He's compared to Tolkien, which happened to him a lot, and this is what he said.
1: Jeff asks, uh, you've been called the American Tolkien. How do you f- do? You feel that that's a fair comparison? Uh, <laughs> I'm feeling a strange sense of deja vu. Yeah, I wonder if it's <laughs> the same guy we just talked to. <laughs> uh, I'm very flattered to be called the American Tolkien. It's uh, the greatest compliment you can give any fantasy writer, Tolkien. Tolkien essentially created modern fantasy. Fantasy, of course, had existed before Tolkien. It goes all the way back to, uh, you know, Gilgamesh and, and Homer. But uh, uh, modern fantasy in the shape that we're familiar with it on the newsstands today is is uh, all following in, in the footsteps of Tolkien.
2: Mm.
0: Okay, very generous. That makes me like Mr. Martin. We'll have another little clip from him later. We'll let that clip run longer, which will maybe point us toward a post-Tolkien world. Martin will talk about how he differs from Tolkien. But we're not there yet, are we? We're not in the post-Tolkien world. Not when Harper Collins is coming out with books like this one, and it's an event. Not when Carl F. Hostetter, a computer engineer at NASA, can edit a book like this, and a newspaper can list his title as a Tolkien expert and head of the Elvish Linguistic Fellowship. People. The Lord of the Rings trilogy came out in 1954 and 1955, There's kind of a sequel. Apparently, Tolkien planned for the trilogy that we know to be the first volume of a two-volume book. The second volume is The Silmarillion, which wasn't finished and came out posthumously. Can I just tell you that when I was typing up notes for this show, I typed Simarillion, leaving out the first L, and my computer auto-corrected it to Silmarillion. That's the power of this man, Tolkien, and his world creation. That's not a real word. That's a word in Elvish. And my computer knows how to spell it. And I'm sure, actually, I checked, it knows how to spell Sauron and Gandalf and Bilbo Baggins and the Hobbit and Frodo and all kinds of other words, orcs. These books sold 150 million copies. They've become famous through their films, the Peter Jackson films, most dramatically. They've had a long and highly influential legacy. One almost doesn't know where to begin. Maybe we need some inspiration. Tolkien himself got it. He got his inspiration in a a single inspired moment in a letter to W.H. Auden, who was his student, by the way. There's a poet I need to cover. He's one of my Absolute favorites. I never talk about him or hardly ever. My goodness. Maybe my goal for 2021 should be to do more of these podcasts, except that would conflict with my other goal of doing fewer of these podcasts. Cut back a little bit, (laughs) breathe. So I guess we're stuck with the status quo for now. You ever do that with your goals? One goal is to exercise more, and another is to take things easy or cut down on the alcohol, but drink more wine. You only live once, after all. Wine is fun to explore. How about this one? Get more sleep and be more productive. I've been doing that for decades. The only way I can be more productive is by sleeping less. Anyway, we were talking about beginnings. Tolkien wrote a letter to Auden and said that one day he was grading papers, and suddenly, out of the blue, quote, on a blank leaf, I scrawled, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. I did not and do not know why, End quote. I did not and do not know why. That sounds like someone who is discovering something, something deep within him, doesn't it? Something elemental, not someone who's saying, I want to write a big book with lots of great characters, so here we go, let me see, how about a, a gibbet? No, how about a slobbit? No. Hmm. Hobbit. That sounds good. That's the right choice. No. This is a man who closes his eyes and has worlds coming into life. But he wasn't born with this world. It came from his childhood experiences, his background, his interests, his abiding passions. That's what I mainly want to uh, explore today. Who was J.R.R. Tolkien? How did he become this great originator? How did his early experiences end up informing and maybe even generating this amazing world that he brought into life and mapped out for us? His son Christopher worked on this, and he lived to be 95, and he died. He's not alive anymore. This is a long time ago we're talking about. Tolkien himself died almost 50 years ago, and yet we're still in his shadow, with the films and the books looming large over the genre of fantasy fiction and fiction itself. The Times named him sixth on their list of the 50 greatest British writers of the 20th century. A lot of times you can find The Lord of the Rings books as the most important book. Number one, I think he's first when it comes to this genre fantasy. I think that's kind of not really in dispute. Or if he's not first, you have to make a pretty good case for why your choice is better than him. So he was sitting there grading papers, and something made him not just think this sentence, but write it down. Something said, there's a story here, a great sweeping story, an epic, a quest, a journey, a whole world, and I'm going to give you the very first clue. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. That became the first sentence of the first paragraph, which you can almost see Tolkien discovering as he writes, as if he's riding a horse but also the horse. So he knows where he wants to go. He's in control, but also the horse has a mind of its own. Can also take you places. That's the impression I get anyway. It's all speculative, of course. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. It continues, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, And that means comfort. End quote. And away we go. Okay. We have to go to, uh, hmm. I almost said we have to go away too. Away we go. And I'm trying to relate that to the podcast. We have to go away too. How does that work? I mean, we have to launch the show. We have to get started. We need some inspiration. Why does it work for Tolkien to say, away we go? But when I tried to say it, it comes out as we have to go away. That's not what I meant. We have to away go to? This is getting worse. Okay, let me stop there and wait for my inspiration. Something more than just J.R.R. Tolkien today on the history of literature.
2: No, 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 no. I meant stop, stop, stop.
0: I said we're looking for inspiration. Can't I just sit here and wait for the muse to strike the way Tolkien did. Listen to what a great moment he had, the first line of books that changed the world, and it just popped into his head. Okay, time for my head to start popping. Come on, muse. In a, okay, I'm getting something. I'm a, in a, here it comes. In a hole in the ground, there lived a podcaster. Oh, that's good. That's poetic, a little intriguing. And I keep going. In a hole in the ground, there lived a podcaster. It was a nasty, dirty, wet hole. Jack Wilson was his name, and no one ever came to visit the end. Oh boy, my book ended before it began. I got a little inspiration, and it cut off. As soon as I tried to harness it, I jumped on my horse, and it instantly collapsed and died, leaving me sitting on the horse on the ground. All right, fine. Luckily, there's another horse we can ride, or at least one we can admire, and that's Mr. Tolkien and his magical steed, J.R.R. Tolkien, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. And yes, I do live in a hole in the ground, pretty much. At least I'm down here whenever I'm talking to you. And most of the time when I'm not. We are in the middle of our at the end of our theme month, I should say. Thursday themes. We did romance novels and science fiction and what was the other? Westerns. Of course, Westerns with Anna North. You should all go listen to those episodes if you haven't already. We are just sailing along here, aren't we? How about some more clips? Or maybe we'll save those. Man, we've got some listener emails to cover first. It's Thanksgiving today, isn't it? And that means we have to cover what we're thankful for. And in addition to the usual thanks that I give every year, thankful for the turkey, thankful for the stuffing, thankful for the mashed potatoes, thankful for the gravy. And at this point, Ms. Jack Wilson jumps in and says, Dear please, maybe mention the things we're truly thankful for. And I say, I said the stuffing. And then I get a dish rag out and wipe the faces of my bawling children who have been left off my list. But do they ever thank me for wiping their eyes with the dishrag? No, never, not once. They have missed the spirit of the holiday altogether. But in addition to that thanks, I have to thank my listeners, especially the Patreons who have been so generous, and the others who have donated to and otherwise supported the show, this humble little podcast, whether that's through ratings and reviews or whatever other method they've chosen, and to the emailers who let me know how things are going out there. Here's one from Shannon. Dear Fats, the great Fatsby. Oh, boy. Listeners may get that reference. I was admiring the nickname Fats, as in Minnesota Fats. Now it seems to have stuck. The Great Fatsby. Here we go. (laughs) This is my new life. Shannon says, I thought you might be pleased to know that some classrooms are no longer playing only the old hits. When I was in middle and high school in the wonderful 1990s, I was assigned 17 out of 20 titles on that top 20 list you read during the Great Gatsby episode. In 2005 and 2006, I student-taught three sophomore English classes. Only two of those, top 20, remained in their curriculum. Fahrenheit 451, which they abhorred so much I gave up the ghost on that one, and Animal Farm, which they loved. In addition to some old classics, we read The Bluest Eye, Like Water for Chocolate, The House on Mango Street, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, and A Raisin in the Sun. I hope 15 years later, in 2020, that classrooms are reading even more diverse and wonderful books. I myself have recently discovered Jessie Redmond Fawcett. If you have yet to read her, she would be well worth your time. The depth of her novel, Plum Bun, makes Edith Wharton sound like a schoolgirl's giggle, and I like Edith. Alas, I never landed my dream job as a high school English teacher. I work in a jail instead, imparting my nuggets of wisdom where I can. On a gloomier note, one of my co-workers just tested positive for COVID-19 this afternoon. I'm going to get myself tested in the morning. If it be my fate that the Rona got me too, I can rest easy, knowing I still have over 200 episodes to get me through quarantine. I'm very thankful for you this Thanksgiving. Happy Turkey Day. Sincerely, Shannon. Well, Shannon, happy Turkey Day to you as well, and thank you for the email. I hope that you are safe and sound, and that your coworker has recovered. I love the thought of you in jail. Wait, wait, sorry, <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't come out quite right. <laughs> that doesn't sound quite right, does it? I love the thought of you at work, which happens to be in a jail, imparting nuggets of wisdom there in the jail. We need to spread good thoughts wherever they are most needed, and jail certainly qualifies for that. Your description of the classrooms and their reading the students today, what they're reading is what I suspected when I talked about the required reading lists that we were going through during that episode. As listeners will remember, we were looking at the question, what's read most in high school? And we talked about the difference between asking, what were you required to read in high school? which would give us an overview of the last 60 years or so of required reading, which is very different from what is being required right now in high school. Remember that Remember that distinction when you look at these surveys. Don't go crazy saying, oh my God, they're reading Red Badge of Courage. You might be reading about something that happened in, say, 1958. That might be who was responding to the survey. That might be when they went to high school and what they were assigned. In any case, I'm glad to hear that the 17 has morphed into two. And it sounds like only Animal Farm is going to survive out of those two. But look at the replacements. The Bluest Eye, Like Water for Chocolate, The House on Mango Street, Maya Angelou, Lorraine Hansberry. Those are all very worthy choices. And if it means that a Steinbeck gets bumped here and there or a Scarlet Letter, hey, that's okay those books will be just fine. They can be discovered and explored. There are always going to be books that don't make it onto the list. The important thing is to teach literature in the right spirit, which is to say with great enthusiasm and a focus on what's important in these books. Life is important. Living a good life, exploring what it means to be human, what it means to live in a society and get along with other people. Not to look at the color of an object and say, oh boy, this stands for greed or whatever. That's not the importance of literature. Here's a whale. Tell me what that symbolizes, students. Multiple choice answers only. No, sorry, that one's wrong. Oh my goodness. Isn't it better to say, here's a captain who's obsessed. He's a madman. And they're all in that ship with him together. What would you do? Would you participate in his mission, cozy up to power, or would you mutiny? Let's say you're not wailing now. You know, that's probably not going to be your future. But what if you were in the army and your job was to follow orders and you felt that your superior officer had gone off the deep end? But your job is to follow him. Those are your orders. What do you do? When do you know? When do you know things have gone wrong? Do you stand up to that superior officer? Can you? When is it allowed? Who makes that call? Or what about Steve Jobs? Wasn't he kind of monomaniacal? But didn't that work out? Didn't that work out just fine for the world? For Apple? For those of us who use these phones and these devices? What if you worked for Elon Musk? Can you see any Ahab in that guy? Do you admire that side of him? It pursues things in the face of opposition, the face of possible insanity. Does it get things done? Is there something beautiful and dark about obsession? Something seductive, something productive, something pure, or is it abhorrent? Do you resist? And that's just Ahab. We're talking about. Look at these other characters. Look at Queequeg. Look at Ishmael. Look at the crew. The whole crew. The family. The society, the floating society. And look at this wild author writing this all into life, making it all seem so real. Okay, we need to keep things moving. Next email: Subject, horror of horrors. Hi, Jack. Listening to one of your older podcasts about James Joyce from December 2017, you briefly discussed upcoming New Year's Eve celebrations and referred to 2017 as a true horror. Ah, 2017, the good old days when we could travel, have coffee with friends, go to restaurants and even give people hugs without fearing death. What freedom, what joy. How could we have known a year like 2020 was around the corner? You realize what you have to do now, don't you, Jack? You have to come up with a stronger adjective to describe 2020. A stronger adjective than horror. Perhaps give Stephen King a call for suggestions. Just saying, dot, 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 Donyee. Well, thank you, Donny, if that's how you pronounce it, D-A-G-N-Y. That was good. I enjoyed that email, that flashback I had forgotten all about 2017 as being a true horror. I guess things just kind of got worse from there, didn't they? We had a whole string of horrible years, so I'm not one to come up with stronger adjectives. I gave it a shot. horror But that's pretty terrible. So I took your suggestion and called Stephen King, who's a big fan of the show, luckily enough. I asked him for his thoughts, and he sent me a note. He said, I've got a note here. Let's see. He says, quote, a word that means something worse than horror? Well, around my house, we call that a Jack Wilson. That's Jack Wilson with an E, as in, don't let young children read my books. They might wake up with a bad case of the Jack Wilsons. Or, my dog got sick, my car ran out of gas, and I fell down and broke my nose on the sidewalk. It's been a while since I've run into so much Jack Wilson. And that's Jack with an E. Ha ha, LOL. The king. End of the note. Ha ha, Stephen. Thanks for nothing. I think you're the horror. J.K. Do people say that to J.K. Rowling? J, J.K. J.K. Just kidding. (laughs) Do they? It's right there for them. I love you, JK. (laughs) What do you mean you're just kidding? Does that cause problems for her? Wouldn't it be great to be married to JK Rowling, aside from owning amusement parks and being richer than the queen and all that? I'll do the dishes tonight, JK.
2: (laughs) Why didn't you do the dishes?
0: I told you I was just kidding. So then she wouldn't know. She'd always have to do the dishes. I'll do the dishes tonight. JK. Damn. Now I have to do them because he might have been kidding. He might have been talking to me or he might have been kidding. She would be furious and I would say, "I'm sorry, JK. I'll never do it again." JK. <laughs> oh my. <boy. laughs> We've got some more emails, but let's save those for next time. Let's take a quick break and come back with the story of J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien believed his ancestors were German, that the name was Germanic in origin, and they they sort of were. They were Prussian, as the medieval Germans were expanding east. We can trace Tolkien's back to 1620, and we see that for a century or so, they were millers. Two Tolkien brothers moved to London in the 1770s, and from then on, the Tolkiens were in the English middle class craftsmen who made things like clocks and watches and pianos. Tolkien believed, some say mistakenly, which is kind of funny because he's one of the most famous philologists of all time. And he might have gotten his own name wrong. Some (laughs) Tolkien this is what some people say. Tolkien believed his name came from the German word Tolkien, which meant foolhardy. And Tolkien sometimes used the joke pseudonym rashbold, which would be a literal translation of that. But other scholars have said no, your name actually means son of Tolk. In any event, this Tolkien, our Tolkien, John Ronald Rule Tolkien, Tolkien was born in 1892 in South Africa. His family was there because his father who was a bank manager for a British bank, had moved there as part of a promotion. Young John Ronald Rule was uh, bitten by a spider, a large baboon spider when he was still very young, but there's some dispute about whether he remembered the event Some say he didn't, and he acknowledged later in life that he didn't actually remember it. Some accounts say it was vivid and made a vivid impression. I'm not sure which to believe there. At three, young J.R.R. left South Africa for England with his mother and brother, and although his father was planning to join the family there on an extended visit, he tragically caught rheumatic fever and died. The family had no income at that point, so they moved in with Uh, his mother's parents in Birmingham. They later moved to a nearby village outside Birmingham. We can start to see the seedlings of the man who later wrote the books that made him famous. He visited his Aunt Jane on a farm called Bag End, which was the name he used later in his works, and he was free to explore Sarehold Mill and Mosley Bog and uh, the Clint, Lickey, and Malvern Hills along with nearby towns and villages like Bromsgrove, Alchester, and Alvichurch. You can run through his childhood and youth and find places that later appear in his fiction. It's as if he were mentally collecting photographs for later use in an album, except these mental photographs and his later use of them were in 3D. We can also see the seedlings of his later life and his educational interests. His mother taught him and his brother at home. He was an eager student, soaking up her lessons in botany and Latin and literature. He liked Lewis Carroll's book Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and escapist stories about Native Americans and the fairy books of Andrew Lang, a Scottish writer who collected folk tales. Another writer, George MacDonald, who, in fact, had tutored Lewis Carroll, had written fantasy books, and Tolkien liked those too. You can draw a pretty direct line from Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky to Tolkien. We know he read it and used some of the terms, although I don't want to push any of these influences too much, because Tolkien was his own person, and C.S. Lewis once said in a real full circle of a quote, Hey, I'm just passing this stuff along, people. <laughs> There's a harmonic convergence here. Took me a while to sort through in my mind. C.S. Lewis said, no one influenced Tolkien. You might as well try to influence a bandersnatch. Now, bandersnatch is a word invented by Lewis Carroll. (laughs) So if we're trying to figure out, well, did Lewis Carroll influence Tolkien and his friends? And one of his friends, maybe his best friend, says, no, you can't influence us. You might as well try to influence a bandersnatch. Well, (laughs) you're kind of acknowledging some influence there, right? It's a little bit like saying I'm not one to throw uh, throw around insults and anyone who says otherwise is a filthy liar. No one could influence my friend. Now let me compare him to a made-up word that my friend who became famous for making up words read when he was a child. But setting that aside, let's get back to the story. More tragedy struck when Tolkien was 12, when his mother passed away. She was so young, just 34 years old, and it was so tragic. She died of diabetes, and this was about 20 years before the discovery of insulin. Had this struck her a couple of decades later, she could have lived a long life with her condition. At that point, though, he didn't have that option. She knew she was dying. She was estranged from her family by then because she had become a Roman Catholic against their protestations. And so Tolkien went to live, with. after his mother's death, he went to live with a friend of his mother's, Father Francis Morgan, who had been assigned by his mother, by Tolkien's mother, to raise her boys as good Catholics. Tolkien and his brother followed in that path. Tolkien believed that Father Morgan was a kind man who taught Tolkien charity and forgiveness. His studies also continued at this point and he became fully immersed in languages now, both within school and without. His cousins had invented a language called Animalic, and Tolkien created a few others himself, Nevbosh and Nafarin. My sister created a language when I was younger which she used just to torment me. And it was called Yachen. And I created mine to carve out a little space for myself. And it was called Birch. And she laughed and laughed at that, refusing to acknowledge Birch as a real language or even a plausible fake language. And meanwhile, Yachen was supposed to be this amazing language. But I realized now she was basically just imitating the sounds of my Swiss grandmother. When she got together with her friends and spoke Swiss German, well, Birch had its defenders. <laughs> actually, no, it didn't. In any case, that little project of mine died, but for Tolkien, it was a his language invention was a gateway to a rich lifetime of intellectual pleasure. He was visiting medieval buildings now and Victorian towers and still living in what was basically the Shire, and he was studying Latin and Anglo-Saxon and Esperanto. He's in his teens at this point, and then around the age of 20, he went to Switzerland, which he himself noted was basically the inspiration for the misty mountains that Bilbo later journeyed across. Tolkien hiked from Interlaken to Lauterbrunnen, and they camped in the moraines. He loved seeing the snows on the mountains and the glaciers. And he said later that this landscape was alive in his dreams. Tolkien had also fallen in love with a woman named Edith Bratt, who was three years older than him. They met when he was 16 at the boarding house where he lived while attending school. He and Edith were both orphans, and they used to go to tea shops together. And one of these shops had a balcony and they would sit on the balcony and toss sugar lumps off the balcony and try to land them into the hats of the pedestrians who walked past on the sidewalk. Father Morgan kind of disapproved of Edith, who was older and a Protestant, and he blamed her for Tolkien having, quote, muffed his exams. It's a little surprising to hear that Tolkien only got a second-class degree in honor moderations, although he did get an alpha plus in philology. And he changed his focus from classics to English language and literature, which pointed him toward Beowulf and more of the old English works that would change his life. He might have been a little distracted. Apparently, he used to paint his visions of his imagined worlds and trace the origins of his invented languages instead of actually studying for the exams he had in the real world. But what is the real world when you're studying history and philology anyway? What he saw in his head was taking him further than the real world could. And in a way, it was his real world. It was the books he wrote, and which ended up making him wealthy and famous. And yet he was humble about his world. He wasn't always confident about what he was doing. He spoke about sub-creation. One scholar has suggested that, quote, this tied into his religious beliefs that all talents and gifts come from God. God is the one creator, and what we do is in imitation of that. Tolkien was a very humble man, quote. In any case, Father Morgan forbade him from seeing Edith until he was 21, and he slipped up once, but under some pressure, he agreed to follow this restriction. After Father Morgan said he was going to cut off his funds for university, pull him out, So Tolkien held fast to his promise that he wouldn't see Edith until he was 21. And in the meantime, Edith got engaged to someone else. But when Tolkien turned 21 on his birthday, he wrote to her and said, I've never stopped loving you. Please marry me. Edith said, I agreed to marry this other guy, George. But that was only because you ditched me and I felt, quote, on the shelf, end quote and now I'm off the shelf and into your arms. She didn't say that part, but effectively that's what happened. Uh, He and Edith met on a train platform. They took a walk into the countryside. They sat under a railway viaduct and agreed to get married. Edith agreed to convert to Roman Catholicism, which was important to Tolkien, but which infuriated her guardian, a family friend, who kicked her out of the house. Tolkien had an interesting relationship with religion. He was strongly religious and strongly Catholic, following his mother's wishes for him. And I say it's interesting because he also had such a love for myths. He combined the two in his mind, saying that myths were what helped him see the, tr- the underlying truths of his religion. Boy, Does that not sound like C.S. Lewis? Can you imagine a better pair than Tolkien and C.S. Lewis? It's kind of like John meeting Paul at the Village Fate. It's wonderful when two people find each other like that. And of course, it was wonderful that Tolkien, or Ronald, as he was called, in his family and Edith had met. They were in love all their lives. And Edith was very proud of his success and fame as an author. They had four children together. And after Edith died in 1971 at the age of 82... Ronald followed just 21 21 months later, still missing her. He was 81. The two are buried in the same grave, and at Tolkien's request, she has the name Luthien added to her name, while he has Baron added to his. The names come from a tale that Tolkien told several times and in a few different versions of the love of a mortal man, Baron, for an immortal elf maiden, Luthien, and the adventures. That the two have together. We skipped over a couple of important things from Tolkien's life his career in both World War I and World War II, his academic work, and of course, the writing of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Let's take a quick break and come back with the rest of the J.R.R. Tolkien story. Tolkien and Edith Bratt were engaged in January of 1913 and married in March of 1916. During that three-year period, war broke out. Britain entered the war in 1914, and although his relatives were shocked, the 22-year-old Tolkien didn't immediately volunteer for the British Army. He was studying, and he was able to delay his enlistment until he finished his degree. In July of 2015, the cause for that delay ran out and he became a second lieutenant. He still had not gotten married and he later expressed his admiration for Edith, who had agreed to marry a man with no job, little money, and no prospects except the likelihood of being killed in the Great War. Junior officers, he said at the time, were being killed off a dozen a minute. He trained with his battalion for 11 months, got married, and two months later, or not even, not even two months later. Was summoned to France. He was bored waiting for action, so he wrote a poem and devised a code using dots so Edith would know where he was. That wasn't allowed for security reasons, but Tolkien was clever, and in the end, it seems to have turned out okay. Edith, however, was a wreck, terrified that every knock on the door could be news of his death. He was in combat for months. The men in his company were infested with lice which eventually brought many of them, including Tolkien, trench fever. His experience was one of seeing his fellow soldiers with empathy. At the outset, he complained that there were very few gentlemen among his peers and that the superior officers were not only not gentlemen, but barely human beings. He liked the working-class men He wanted to befriend them, and instead he was supposed to train them and discipline them and somehow inspire their love and loyalty, and he didn't find any of this natural. In the end, once combat began, they were all thrown together, the classes were all jumbled together, and he always saw the war from the side of the plain soldier. Many have commented on the parallels between battles in the Lord of the Rings books and Tolkien's World War I experience. After combat and racked with disease, he was medically unfit for military duty, so he was sent to recover in a cottage where he began to write. He was trying to create a mythology for England, which he never finished. All this is just leading up to his masterpieces, people. His illness came and went. He and Edith had a child, and he used to go walking in the woods. And when Edith was there with him, she would dance to cheer him up. It was a vision, an experience, and a vision he would remember all his life. He was discharged as a lieutenant. We're in about 1919 or 1920 now, which would make Tolkien 27 or so. And here we come to a part of the story I just love. This is like one of those moments where a job fits a person... Hardly even know what to compare it to. Tolkien got a job helping to put together the Oxford English Dictionary. If you're not familiar with the OED, it's an astonishing dictionary, which goes through definitions and etymologies and use the usage of words, gives little quotes so you can see where the words appeared. It is way more comprehensive than you would ever expect it to be. They put Tolkien onto words of Germanic origin, Starting with the letter W, it sounds like a joke. It sounds like a Monty Python sketch. But who better than Tolkien to be in charge or working on words of Germanic origin starting with the letter W? Not all, just just part, just part of the range of words starting with the letter W. <laughs> this was a big project. Ah, uh, he labored over the task starting with the word waggle the earliest known one that he worked on, both the noun and the verb, to waggle and a waggle. Most of his time there, he got from waggle to warlock, W-A-G to W-A-R. That gave him some of the trickiest words. They seem to have funneled tricky words Tolkien's way because he was very good at what he was doing. So the ones they were having difficulty with they sent to him, including walnut, not an easy etymology, and wampum, but walrus was the one that became the stuff of legend. Tolkien wrote six different versions of a of an entry dictionary entry for the word walrus, at least six, six that we know of, and even after he left work at the Oxford English Dictionary. He got a job at Leeds University. He was the youngest professor there. So he left the Oxford English Dictionary. But even into the 1920s, when he was no longer employed by the OED, he was writing pages of notes on the etymology of the word walrus. This guy loved words. He loved word origins. He loved etymology, philology. He loved languages. Let's jump ahead a little bit because this is so good. Later in life, after his works had come out, a fan wrote him a letter, including a poem that the fan had tried to write in Elvish. Tolkien translated the poem into English and noted all of the errors. He was willing to take the time to do that, and he had enough confidence in his own. Uh, knowledge of his invented language to be able to point out the errors. This was important, actually, to get things right. One of his credos was that rules are vital. Once you set up rules for your invention, you have to follow them. This is what he called secondary belief. Even though not everything was complete or finished in that world of Middle Earth. In other words, you might have parts of Middle Earth that aren't there, but that doesn't mean you have a place where the tone or the general rules of the rest of Middle-earth that you've set up for the rest of Middle-earth can be dramatically or drastically different. And for Elvish, even though he didn't finish the language, he could tell when someone wasn't getting it right. He could tell when the rules of Elvish were being violated, even though he once said, quote, I don't desire to go and have afternoons talking Elvish to chaps. <laughs> and then he added, Elvish is too complicated, I've never finished making it. <laughs> We're still in the years now where he worked for the OED and became a young professor. He started translating Beowulf, and he wrote some essays about Beowulf. And of course, Beowulf is one of his most valued sources, which he pointed out. He, he believed that Beowulf needed to be read aloud, and he used to walk into a room and start it loudly and dramatically with its famous opening word of hoit, H-W-A-E-T, which means something like behold. Seamus Heaney translates it as so. It's a word to get the audience's attention, a word that says stop, listen, shut up and listen. Hey, you, here we go. That's the spirit of it. The idea was that this was not just some dusty old lines on a page that you have to, covered with dust, and you have to rub them off with your sleeve. Blow the dust off with your breath and then drag yourself to read. This is a great dramatic poem. Could be delivered, delivered orally and had real power. Unfortunately, I don't have a recording of Tolkien reading Beowulf, but let's do this. Let's hear Beowulf read aloud so we can hear what the language was like, including that opening word. This is going to be uh, read by an actor. Then we can hear some clips of Tolkien reading uh, from The Lord of the Rings. We'll hear at least one, I guess. Uh, so you can get a, a sense of Tolkien's voice. Then you can maybe put the two together.
3: We'll start with this. Here's Beowulf. What we gardina in your dagum, Thay can Who that the ellen Framadon. Of chill shaving shalen a threatum, moneyum magdum, mayer settler oft there Ayes are airlass, sid an wert, fair shaft funden, he thus fro bad werks under walknum, wertmandem thar, or that him eich wilch that um sitendra, over on drade hiren schulder, and That was gold kuning.
0: Okay, so we picture that. Coming out of Tolkien's mouth. You'll hear Tolkien's actual voice in a minute here. But W.H. Auden, one of the students, recalled this as an unforgettable experience, hearing Tolkien reading Beowulf aloud. He said, quote, The voice was the voice of Gandalf. End quote. So let's hear Tolkien's voice. This is Tolkien reading Lord of the Rings.
3: I cannot read the fiery letters in Frodo in a quavering voice. No, said Gandalf, but I can. Letters are elvish, of an ancient mode, the language is that of Mordor, which I will not utter here. This, in the common tongue, is what is said, close enough. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and the darkness bind them. There's only two lines of a verse long known in elven lore. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the Dark Lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie.
2: Mm. Kind of giving
0: me chills. I'm not even a huge fan. <laughs> And yet one ring to rule them all. It kind of gives me chills to hear that in Tolkien's voice. You can kind of hear it, right? What I mean, you can imagine him in that classroom reading Beowulf and holding forth, captivating the young W.H. Auden and his fellow students. We're almost at the part where Tolkien starts writing The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings, of which he said, it is written in my lifeblood, such as that is, thick or thin, and I can no other. First, though, we have to wrap up what was going on in his life. There was more teaching and essays that he wrote about fairy stories and Beowulf. He translated Beowulf and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and he moved to Oxford, and he became one of the Inklings, friends with C.S. Lewis and others. When World War II broke out, he was trained as a cryptographer. That was his way of helping with the effort. But let's go to his great creation, one of the poems he found. When he was studying Old English studies was called the Christ of Cinewolf. he had a it, it, the poem had a somewhat cryptic couplet it said, "Hail, this is the translation it said "Hail Arundel, brightest of angels over middle earth sent to men. The word stopped him. it stopped him middengird is the word it means middle earth it stopped. Tolkien in his tracks. Midingard was the everyday world between heaven above and hell below. Middle earth, middle earth, of course. Of course, more grist for the fantasy mill. Like I said, you can see all kinds of influences from his youth and young adulthood and life in these books. You can go see castles he lived near that turned into castles in the book and the landscape of the Shire is right there in the landscape of his childhood, and so on. The trip to Switzerland with the mountains. The words, too. The words that came his way, and the myths that he was exposed to, and that he sought out and studied, and everything else. Harry Potter works like this as well. You can go to Cambridge and Oxford and Edinburgh and London and see the kinds of train stations and alleys and roads and Hogwarts buildings right there. The world is invented, but there's a grounding in reality as if the fantasy author goes to see something that truly inspires them or hears something, a myth or a word that inspires them to think, what if, what if, what if this is a place where you might pull a sword out of a stone or encounter a creature, a fairy, an elf, a dwarf, a whole field of them, in fact. Or a race of creatures that only comes out of my mind that I'm putting together with what I know from other things. I can see that here. I can see a village. I can dream up such things as hobbits. Here's what they look like. Here's how they talk. And here's the giant quest for our hero to go on. It's a hero's journey. Naturally, one of Joseph Campbell's monomyths, You can find all the stages of the monomyth in uh, The Lord of the Rings and also in The Hobbit. You can see them all play out in the movies, too. The Ring of Power, the mysterious Black Riders, the evil trees that control a forest, and the hobbits who have to make their way through a perilous world. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit in 1937. His publishers loved it and wanted another story about hobbits, which Tolkien warned them, that's going to take me a while. It's going to take me a while to produce it. I'm going bigger now. (laughs) Got bigger plans, bigger things in mind. He started several times and had to set them aside. A few false starts. Finally, the scope and the details of the new story came into view. He had a whole mythology to generate for this work, but luckily he had already done some of this in that work, The Silmarillion, which he drew upon. And he finally ended up with what we now know as the trilogy, which is divided into six books. The book includes illustrations and more than 60 poems, which are about going to war and wandering, a life of wandering and drinking. There are riddles and prophecies and magical incantations. He made up a calligraphy for some of them and maps and an inscription for the ring and drawings for some of the places. He stuffed these books with his themes, the ones that interested him, and they come directly from all the concerns we've talked about already. He loved the Norse language and was in a club of people who studied the Vikings. That's in there. You can see it. The struggle, he learned Finnish. You can see that. The struggle of good and evil, straight from his deep and abiding uh, Catholicism. His mother, Whom he viewed as a martyr, handing him off to a priest for guidance and education before she died. We have the struggle of good and evil. His love for history and myth and the etymology of words, his love for worlds like the world of Beowulf, where power struggles to do the right thing against unearthly creatures, the elements of hope and suffering and redemption which run through those old English poems. And give you a tantalizing glimpse of a society where men were pitted against monsters. His own fighting in the Great War, his life as an academic, steeped in words and poetry and the sounds of language, and breaking apart words into their component parts and unlocking their meanings, and watching the history that rides along with those meanings, the way that words have not just meaning but weight the heaviness of history, the ringing resonance of time, the feeling of death and immortality, the weather and the landscape, the prophets, priests, and kings, the humble, unassuming scholar who is cast as a soldier and who must summon forth all his powers to save and create. It's the story of the hobbit and the story of the Fellowship of the Ring, and the Two Towers, and the Return of the King, and it's the story of our author, who poured his lifeblood into his work, John Ronald Rule Tolkien. Now, we got a full head of steam going there. That is ordinarily where I would just launch the History of Literature theme and say a few remarks, and we'd be all set. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. Go read Tolkien. May you live long and prosper. I guess that's the wrong fantasy phrase, but we're, we're all friends here, aren't we? <laughs> we get each other. Ordinarily, I would just launch the theme and wrap things up. Instead, I wanted to give you a little more from George R. R. Martin, which I talked about at the beginning. We heard a little snippet of it, but this is a little bit more. We'll let the the interview run for another minute or so. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm losing my voice. Time to head off to the... Well, I have to work first. And <laughs> then Thanksgiving. This is Wednesday, the day before that I'm recording this. Okay, where were we? George R.R. R. Martin. What he does so graciously here is talk about how important Tolkien is to what is called high fantasy, which Game of Thrones fits right into, but also he talks about the differences. He doesn't just say, oh, well, I think I have different characters, or I wanted to update things, or I wanted to have a more interesting storyline, or whatever a writer might say when they've been asked for the millionth time if they consider themselves the American Tolkien. It's more like he's saying you need different authors who can pick up the baton. I enjoyed this little bit from Mr. Martin, and I hope you enjoy it as well. So, in the spirit of fantasy fiction, with a nod to all of those who came after Tolkien, including C.S. Lewis and Lloyd Alexander and J.K. Rowling and Ursula K. Le Guin and Neil Gaiman and Philip Pullman and many others besides, let's give the last word to George R.R. R. Martin.
1: Uh, modern fantasy in the shape that we're familiar with it on the newsstands today is, is uh, all following in, in the footsteps of Tolkien. Um, that being said, I'm a, I'm a very different writer than Tolkien. Uh, we're, we're products of very different times. He was uh, born in the 19th century, and um, a product of English society at a particular point in time, he served and fought in the trenches of World War One. He was a world-class linguist and Oxford don um, of, of academic persuasion. He he wrote his books largely, uh, I think, for his own amusement and the amusement of his children, working out some particular passions of his, like creating artificial languages. Um, I share none of that. I mean, I'm a baby boomer born in 1948, I come from a blue-collar background in Bayonne, New Jersey, lived in federal housing projects, was um, in, involved in the opposition to the Vietnam War, um, and have, have largely told stories and, and written as a, as a professional writer uh, for most of my adult life. Um, I have great admiration for Tolkien. But my work is in no sense Tolkien esque, except in the sense of being a secondary world fantasy. But I'm still flattered by the comparison. I mean, it's you know I'm being compared to one of the greatest that ever was, and uh, who could who could object to that?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it, J.R.R. R. Tolkien. I kind of can't believe it. This little podcast is taken me into some fascinating places, including the Shire. On a journey, you might say, or I might say. I've said it a lot, haven't I? Who is the hero of those books and those films? It's hard to top Sam, I think. My kids like Sam a lot more than they like Frodo. I kind of like Bilbo, at least after he gets old, the guy who stays home, not when he turns scary, not when he's subject to the addiction of the power of the ring, Possibly Bilbo Baggins was based on the fantasy writer William Morris, by the way, who traveled to Iceland. That's another episode we have to do. William Morris is a fascinating character. My wife loves these movies. She makes no secret about her love for Gollum. He's her favorite. And she even imitates his voice, although... Don't ever tell her I told you that. She will really let me have it. We are the History of Literature, and we're teamed up with Lit Hub Radio and The Podglomerate. Learn more about that at www.thepodglomerate.com. Enjoy the holidays, everyone, and please do stay safe. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.